outset, <clears throat> our duty, our mandate as children of God is not complicated. It's, it's not difficult. We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, and all our mind. We're to love our neighbor as ourselves. We are to reverence and to keep with the utmost of judiciousness the commandments, the, the teachings of Scripture. We are to live what Jesus told us to live. We don't have the right as Christians, if we name the name of Christ, to go off the reservation, so to speak, when it comes to the truth of the Bible we want to keep. We are charged to keep it. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And he said that more than once. He said it a lot. Now, why would you think he would say that? Because he knows our propensities. That we are prone to not keep his commandments because... We tend to begin to love other things. Our hearts are easily seduced. Easily. It's amazing. I'm going to share with you from a diary, the diary and journal of David Brainerd, who was the first missionary, I believe, to the American Indians back east in the 1700s. This was before the war. And uh, how, how much of a heart he had when you read his diary, he does speak of the Indians and, and trying to preach to them. But what he, re, what he writes most about, the bulk load of this book, is his longing to be near Jesus. He called this the lower world and that the upper world. And he lived out in the, in the forests of those areas, New Jersey and New York, all of that area. And he lived by himself. In little cottages, often cold and very little food. And, but he loved God so much and he couldn't wait to be home with the Lord. And he died at age 29 of tuberculosis actually. But oh, he was used mightily. For those three years that he was with the Indians, there was a huge revival among them. But his number one, and I'm going to read to you in a little bit, his number one desire was that he would be made like Jesus. And he hated the sin that was in him. And he fought against it. This is sanctification. Making us like Jesus. I'm going to call today as we look at Romans chapter 6 verses 12 through 14. The imperatives toward a holy life. This would be the commands toward a holy life. This is what you do to have a holy life. And the first question that you have to ask yourself before you even start listening to me, do you want to be? Do you want one? Do you want a holy life? Some of, a, some of you will have to be honest with yourself and say, I do, but I really am just at a stage in my life where I want to do this and I want to do that and I want to do this. I, I do, but I, I, I've come to a point where I'm not sure about this, I'm not sure about that. And, well, both of those answers are honest, but be honest with yourself even more. If you don't want a holy life, just say so. 
Because if you have to follow it up with a but, you don't. It would be more accurate to say, oh, I think about it. But I'm really more into this now. That would be more honest. We struggle. We are sinful people. And God has shown us how to live. And I'm convinced of this. To desire and to live a holy life will provide you with more joy and more satisfaction and more peace in your present temporal life. Just by the very nearness of God in you than you could ever have doing your thing. I think of it kind of like uh, in our family. I, some of us in our family like sweets a lot, okay? <clears throat> and uh, if you ever go into some of those fancy bakeries, okay, they're French generally, you know, and you, and you think if you go in there, you're going to have a good thing. <clears throat> and boy, you look at the case, and your eyes are as wide as saucers, and your tongue's beating a hole through the top of your head, and... And you just think, I'm about to have the most gratifying experience of the, of, the, of the palate I'll ever have. And you look at this fluffy, white or red, raspberry-ish, whatever it could be, thing. And it's got the pastry and you think, I'm going to bite into this and it's just going to, I'm going to go to heaven in a minute. And then you get it. You sit at your table Already you're like Pavlov's dog and you're having to wipe your chin. Trying to hope no one notices. And you take that fork and you souse it down in there and your first sign of trouble is it don't go in. Okay. Well, you still have high hopes. And you break it off. That's kind of concerning. And you get it to your mouth and you bite into that thing and it's tasteless it's mildly sweet and you feel like you're eating plastic and you think is this the display (laughs) but you look and no it came right out of the ranks it looked good it come from a fancy shop it's got a fancy name and it's French has no taste. You go home later that evening. And someone, your daughter, this is an analogy, in the family, just decides to just make a simple batch of chocolate chip cookies. And you bite into that. And you take a little glimpse of heaven. Simple. Doesn't look fancy. It's just plain. It's good. There's a difference. Holiness is practical. It's not meant to make you look good. If you try to make it that way, you'll have tasteless worth. But holiness makes Jesus look good in you. Holiness is about Jesus Looking good in you. Holiness is about Jesus on display in your life. In the practical everyday affairs and struggles. Now how do you do that? Well stop majoring on externals. 
Stop thinking about what you can get by with and still be fine on the inside. Because I'll tell you what, a cream filling can still be gross. And think about the sweetness that a normal human can give when they yield themselves to the supremacy of Jesus Christ. We talk often every Sunday about the problem. I don't think I can stop giving this because I need you guys to understand. In our world today, in the 21st century Western Christian church, we are failing to understand the doctrine of sanctification in our life and as it relates to holiness in our everyday lives. As a result, we are weak. We are lethargic. We have no power, very little passion. And we are ever increasingly conforming to the world around us. This is happening in droves. The truth of Scripture is being set aside for all the trappings of what looks good. And everyone's falling into it, it seems. A couple of things I want to share with you before we get into our text. Jonathan Edwards, on the necessity of a holy life, he said, A true and faithful Christian does not make holy living an accidental thing. It is his great concern. As the business of the soldier is to fight, so the business of the Christian is to be like Christ. If you don't even think about that, then that's where you are. And there will be moments in your life when you will think about that. And many of us here who know Jesus have had seasons when that's all we've been concerned about. And then we find ourselves having drifted a fur, a fur piece away. Okay, just sometimes the redneck comes out. <clears throat> Sorry, it just does. And we find that we've drifted. And we think, how did I get here? I want to get back. And tragically, what's the time span between? If, if, if you have to go years back to your close affections of Jesus, man, you've missed some time. It should be measured in minutes or hours. At the most, a day. Not months and years. Pay attention. Prone to wonder. Prone to leave the God I, I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and heal it. Or seal it. Seal it to thy throne above. J.C. Ryle again, Sharon. Doctrine, then, is useless if not accompanied by a holy life. If I say I believe the Bible, but I don't live the Bible, then what, what does it profit me? If I say I believe in a holy life but entertain unholy things and unwholesome or unholy uh, uh, entertainments and holy relationships and holy business practices, unholy thought life, because that's where a lot of us, you know, the lawnmower, then what good does my doctrine do me? It's worse than useless. It, it does positive harm. I've never heard of this as like a double negative, but it's kind of not. It's a positive harm. Something of the image of Christ must be seen and observed in our private life and habits and character and doing. Something 
that says Jesus is alive in that person. Now, holiness here on this earth does not mean perfection. You'll never reach perfection. We all have feet of clay. Do we not? But if you ever allow yourself to say, I have feet of clay, therefore I will excuse my failings in my pursuit of holiness because I'm human, you've missed it again. I know I, I sometimes say the same things over and over again, but I'm not as old as Travis is today, but, and I will never be as old as Travis is today. Right? But I do repeat myself more and more these days. My kids often give me that eye roll, which I remember doing to my dad. But I believe that we pursue what we love. I love my wife with a passion and a, and a joy that God blesses and gives. And so I do stuff that's silly to show it. I don't do it to convince her. I do it because I can't help it. And that's when, and when we're talking about Jesus, then we're talking about why do I feel like I just need to stop what I'm doing and go there for three minutes and just pray and thank God for today? Then do it. Why do I feel the need to share Christ with everybody I'm around? Then just do it. Why, why can't, why, why does it bother me so bad whenever I see or hear things in the media that's an affront to the holiness of God? Then pray, tell God about it, and ask Him to fix it. There should be evidences in our lives of holiness. As we do every week, in honor of God and His Word, let's stand for the reading of this, of this text Why do we stand? Because we should. Because it's the Word of God. And if that ever gets to the point where it's a normative thing and common as dust, then we've missed it again. So then let's make a discipline. This is reverence. Romans 6, 12-14. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Let us pray. Father, this word that we have here is very clear, it's very direct, and it's meant to be taken literally. Give us the grace to appropriate it. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. On your way back down to the seat, I thought I might read the New Living Translations version. Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God, for you were dead, but now you have new life. 
So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Sin is no longer your master, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. I like the way the NLT puts that. I think it's very expansive, descriptive of the nuances of the verbs that we have there. It's motivation, people. What's your primary motive? For your life, for you young ones, you're, you're starting out. You, you have to establish yourself. You, everybody has to make a living. And you're, you, you, know, you were told you can be anything you want to be, and that's not true. Okay? <clears throat> you can be anything that, that God allows you to be and in that which He provides for you to do. Uh, seek Him for that. Uh, secondly, you realize you have to make a living, and so you may have to do something you don't like for a little while, all right, or a long while, depending. But if you're God-focused, if, if you're Christ-focused, there's going to be a satisfaction of knowing that the sovereignty of God has you where He wants you. Now you must display Him, okay? Con- do not let sin be the determiner of what you show to the world. Now, how easy is that? That's a battle. Some of you aren't aware yet of just how big a battle that is. That's where you are in your sanctification. But you will. The more close you get to Christ, the more deeply the sin you see. Some of you here that don't know Jesus, I want to tell you this. You can see nothing until you see Christ first. Your prayers, your efforts are nothing. Christ first. Lord, you are God. I am man. I am woman. I am a sinful person. Save me from my sin. Hear my prayer. That's the prayer he will hear. Then you can start living for Jesus. But if you don't, start there. As we say often, you're whistling Dixie. Okay, it won't work out. So I thought as we talk about this issue of sanctification, I might go back to a confession of faith that I happen to appreciate, the London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689. I think its words are very pertinent to understanding this. There are numbers, if you'll notice, uh, scattered throughout the paragraph and what those are are numerous verse, ref- verse references to substantiate the statement but here's what the writers of the 1689 said upon the subject of sanctification those who are united to Christ and effectually called and regenerated have a new heart and a new spirit created in them through the power of Christ's death and resurrection so that's why I say You can't begin to live for Jesus unless you know Jesus. And if you're in Jesus, Jesus has brought you to himself. That's how you know you're in Jesus. He changes everything. And he did that, as we looked back last week, through his death and resurrection. They are also further sanctified, really, and personally. It's personal. He is... He is dealing with you as an individual, individually, okay, through the same power by his word and spirit dwelling in them. 
So when I become a Christian, the Word of God dwells in me first in the declaration of Christ as Lord, and then subsequently and consecutively on down the line, He dwells in me through the Holy Spirit given to me to remind me of all the things that Jesus has said, to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, to remind me that I am His child and that I should have a desire to reflect Him. Okay? Notice this. The dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed. That's Romans 6. We just talked about this, 1 through 11. And the various evil desires that arise from it are more and more weakened and put to death. That's good news. If you're tired in your fight of sanctification, just keep going. It's growing weaker. At the same time, those called and regenerated are more and more enlivened and strengthened in all saving graces. If you grow in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll find that I'm finding as I grow I can pray more. I'm finding as I grow, I do have more discernment. I'm finding as I grow, I do understand more of the Word of God as it's taught, as it's preached, and as I read it. I do, as I grow in the, in the knowledge of Christ, as I'm being sanctified, I can see the world for what it really is. I do understand how I'm supposed to live. I'm, I'm growing, and living things grow. And that's exactly what a Christian is, a living thing that God has brought to life. It says, so that they practice true holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. And thank God, uh, positionally, in sanctification, I am in Christ. And you are in Christ if you know Jesus. So, His holiness, thank God, is what the Lord sees when He looks upon me. Covered in the blood. That's why we use that language. It, it finishes up in 13.2 of that section. This sanctification extends throughout the whole person. Every part of you, from, from, how, you, from how you present, how you dress, how you act, how you speak, how you think, how you view the world, how you approach God, how you approach others. That which you use to entertain yourself, that your time changes your use of time. He changes everything. Sanctification involves the whole part of your life. And I like what it says, uh, though it is never completed in this life. You'll, you'll never get done here, okay? You're, you're going to enter heaven still soft in the middle, okay? But mostly baked. It says, some corruption remains in every part. From, the, from this arises a continual and irreconcilable war with the desires of the flesh against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And we know that's Bible, don't we? That's, that's how it works. Now, I wanted to tell you, I was surprised. I told Rich, I was wanting to pull up our bit, uh, Northridge statement of faith on this. We don't have anything on, say, on sanctification in our entire doctrinal statement. 
can you believe that? I was like, wow, well, you know who to blame for that. So, <laughs> yep, he's standing right here. <sighs> but which is an evidence of sanctification, might add. Because now I see that. I didn't see that before. Here's our heart from David Brainerd. Friday, January 6th. Feeling and considering my extreme weakness and want of grace, the pollution of my soul, and danger of temptations on every side, I set apart this day for fasting and prayer. When's the last time you set apart a day for fasting and prayer as you looked at the pollution of your soul? Neither eating nor drinking from evening to evening. I'm assuming that's from morning to evening. Oh, yeah, it's 20, yeah. So, uh, beseeching God to have mercy on me and my soul, intensely longed that the dreadful spots and stains of sin might be washed away. You hear it? What does he want? Saw something of the power and all-sufficiency of God. That's what we want when we pray. My soul seemed to rest on His power and grace. Longed for resignation to His will and mortification to all things here below. That's on this earth. My mind was greatly fixed on divine things. My resolutions for a life of mortification, continual watchfulness, self-denial, seriousness, and devotion to God were strong and fixed my desires ardent and intense. My conscience tender and afraid of every appearance of evil. What did this man want? He wanted to be holy unto God. My soul grieved with the reflection of past levity and want of revel, revel, resolution for God. I solemnly renewed the dedication of myself to Him and longed for grace to enable me always to keep covenant with Him. Time appeared very short. Eternity near, and a great name, either in, out, in or after life, together with all earthly pleasures and profits, but an empty bubble, a deluding dream. And what he said was, as I thought, all I want is more of him, less of me. That's sanctification on display. Imperative number one. In Romans chapter 6, verse 12, we read these words. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies or in your desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God, for you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. And the reason he says this <coughs> has everything to do with what we read in verses 1 through 10. You are dead. Like you were buried with Him in baptism, you are buried from your sin. Like you were raised to new life in the resurrection, you are raised to new life in the resurrection. So, And we remember verse uh, 11 as it talks about reckon ourselves to be dead. An accounting term, the summation of all this, this, this factual data is to constantly consider ourselves dead to sin. But now we must make it our practice to not let sin hold sway over us. I just think we should look at it simply. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Don't let it reign. Don't obey its lusts. It's really kind of simple. 
when it comes down to it. Abstain from all appearances of evil. Don't do the things that you know Jesus wouldn't do. Don't intentionally violate His Word to do what you want to. Just stop it. Sounds like that YouTube thing with the counseling and I forget. It's like a spoof on counseling and people come in with all these problems. You just say, well, just stop it. You know, and you're like, well, how do I stop it? And, and really, that's the question. First, you have to realize you are not to let sin reign over you. Reign. Who's your curios? Lord, that means Lord. Who is it? Then why should you create, commit treason to go to anywhere else to obey that? We're having a conversation here. Okay? Thanks, Annie. I'll pay you 25 cents after service. It's a tip. But isn't it, the, isn't it the question? Every time you think to violate Scripture, do you realize what you're saying? I am going to have for the next, so often, another Lord. Do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Do not let it reign. Look, look in the green. That which has our affections controls our actions. <laughs> How true is that? That which has our affections controls our very actions. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You will show what you love by what you do, by what you permit. That's, it's true of all of us. It's, uh, it, look, the war is there. It doesn't mean I have to agree with the war. It just means I got to engage in it. Okay? The world says to treasure and desire those things for which we have desires and affections. But Jesus says that our affections and desires grow toward those things which we treasure. So then the question is, what do you really treasure? This is the question that undergirds sanctification. What do you, what do you treasure more than anything else? Now, I just read from you David Brainerd's words. What, do you, what would you say out of one excerpt that that man treasured? Jesus, Christ, His nearness. Look, I, <clears throat> I don't need any more answers to why. And I, can, I mean it. I don't. I used to think I did. I don't need to understand either. And that's a fact. I don't. I just need His presence. That's all I want. And the Lord was so gracious to show me that. Just, you, you guys, they, the world can do what it wants to do. I don't need to understand. I just need His presence. Because I know that when he is near, what else is happening? Peace for my soul. He is so large in my view that I don't care to see behind him. Thank you. I have assurance of calmness. It's as if my head is in heaven and my feet are on the earth. That's how I think we're supposed to live. 
So what do you treasure? Imperative number two. And this is key. Notice this. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil. So don't don't allow your body to be weaponized. (laughs) They can weaponize just about anything these days. I can't help it. He's captivating. You can weaponize just about anything. Rocks and sticks and stones. and Yeah. You can weaponize it all. But I, the Bible's telling us to not let any part of our body become an instrument. So why would I take these hands? with which to serve, with which to greet, with which to write, with which to build, and use them for for, 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 for perversion or sin or wickedness or self-gratification. Why should I use these hands for that? Why 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 should I take this mind of mine and let it be yielded to the things of the world to listen to what they say, to do what they want, to cause them or allow them to make me think a certain way or put me in a certain mood or cause me to have an attitude when my heart and my mind are supposed to be totally yielded to Christ all the time and if it's not, I need to detach for a second and get right. On top of an electric motor... There's a little red button, generally speaking, unless it's faded out. Sometimes that electric motor will seize up and it'll trip it. You got to hit the reset button and then it'll start up again. I know all about that with cattle feet. So I think to check out is to hit the reset button. When you sense that coming on, do that. Don't yield yourself, your body, to sin as a weapon against you and, 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 and to take the name of Christ and disparage it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Paul spelled out in practical terms, this is from Robert Mounts, that what it means to transfer our obedience from sin to God We are no longer to place any part of our bodies at the disposal of sin to be useful as an instrument of unrighteousness. And then he this is interesting. If the metaphor is military in nature, Paul was saying, don't let sin take command of any part of your body and use it as a weapon for evil purposes. Here comes the devil. I am conscripting your eyes. For my purpose is to look upon evil so that I can assault your soul and cause you to damage your family and friends. You're conscripting me? Yes, I'm taking it by force. Over my dead body, <laughs> you've got to fight back. You're gotta, you got, so what, well, the Bible says, how do you defeat that, right? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So what do you need to do? You need to change what you're looking at. Okay? That's what you need to do. Or, or whatever else it may be. Don't let it take command. Instead, we are to present ourselves to God once for all as those who have been brought from death to life. And here's the concluding promise. Look at verse 14. And I love this one. <clears throat> Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Wow. Dominion, that's a big fat word, right? 
Douglas Moo writes, sin shall certainly not be your Lord now or ever. That would be the literal tense of what that means. Brian, nothing should dominate you but Jesus now or ever. Okay? Hugh, nothing ever shall dominate you but Jesus now or ever. This is the reality of what the Scripture is telling us. It isn't a hope so. It isn't a maybe. It isn't a theory. This is actual scriptural fact. Now just, what would you say? Uh, just own it. We don't do very good here because we have corrupted affections, double-mindedness happening, right? You know what double-mindedness means? It means to be two-souled. You love God, but you love the world kind of too. Listen to this, and I'll close. Our prop, this is from the book, The Great Transformation. It's an excellent book on sanctification. I'm afraid we see Christians today who have lost much of their love for Christ. How else do you explain all this love of the world, this love of entertainment, this love of pleasure, which seems to be part of the life of modern Christians? How do you explain it except as waxing cold? Love has waxed cold because the pressure of this modern age is weakening the sanctification of God's people. Do you hear what he's saying there? The, the, the constant barrage of godlessness is penetrating your hull if you were a submarine at crush depth looking for a way in every day. It is, as it were, battering against them. It is clamoring for attention. Oh, says the conscience, I should spend time in secret prayer. Nonsense, says the world. You must watch this TV show. I must spend time with my Bible, says my conscience. Not at all, says the world. There is this worldly attraction that must be part of your daily schedule. The people of God are caught in this conflict, this author says. Maurice Roberts. The way out, the way out of this is to see that we must please God alone in this life. And I think that's an understatement of the century. So, who is it you really need to please? Yes, in all that you do, who really is behind it all? Who, needs, who do you need to please? God alone. Oh, it gets simple. We must learn to take up our cross and deny ourselves. We are to crucify our love of the world and to mortify our love of the things of this present age. You know what mortify means? To kill. It means to kill. We are to lust for nothing more than that we should live to the glory of God and the enjoyment of His presence with us in this life. I mean, that's just, that's just simple, man. And you know what? I just want to tell you in case you don't know, the world isn't going to help you do that. I remember, you know, my, we're Generation X. That's fun. First latchkey kids here. Okay. First, first generation to have the whole 
uh, epidemic of divorce and two parent uh, or single parent homes and no one's home when you get after out of school no one's ever happy with homework and you get in all kinds of mischief and you get really kind of uh, skeptical about things so my generation is known as the big chip on the shoulder generation because you say that's all good and stuff but then you don't live it so whatever that's my generation but I will say this uh, my, I was thinking about football yesterday when I was running that was weird I was a lineman. I always dreamed of being able to make a, a running play like after a fumble. That was a big fantasy of mine. Okay. But that was kind of, yeah, it was, anyway. So I was thinking about Coach Wood. Coach Wood was, he was a Christian man. He cussed a little sometimes. But he was a Christian man. He, he did love Jesus. And boy, it became more and more. I remember through my high school career there, he just became more. I think he got saved, right? It was I went to that school, and by the time I left, boy, he was just. And we, would, we had two-a-days and all that kind of stuff, you know, after-school practices and in the heat of the day. And, you know, you don't eat chicken fried steak before you have practice. And, and uh, it's Oklahoma heat and humidity. And, but on Wednesday, on Wednesday we had very short practices. And he would say, now I can't tell you guys what to do. You can stay here and run, do ladders, or you can go to church tonight. I can't tell you what to do, but I'm saying that's your options, because I'm going to go to church tonight, but I can't tell you what to do. And he would do that, because back then, Wednesdays were protected. It was just the way it was. And, and, And parents didn't have to choose for their children. It was just kind of a given. Now you do. That's just one area. What about another area? Well, I don't want to get into it. I don't have time. But I think you know what I mean. The world is making you choose allegiance. So here's what we need to do. We need to not let sin reign by deciding it doesn't have to. You know it doesn't have to. It has no, it has no teeth. We don't weaponize, we don't allow our body to be weaponized for sin. The Bible says sin does not have dominion over us. It does not. It does not. How do we connect all this to God? We pray. And today we're going to pray together. Now I've said a lot. But what might be on your heart? Remember, corporate prayer is about we and us. Not I and me. So don't want to hear that. It's we and us as God's people. Coming before God together. What do we need to pray about today? Rich, would you start us off? Now when Rich stands and prays, if you pray, please stand. As soon as he's done, someone else pray. As soon as they're done, someone else pray. There don't need to be any lag in it. And then we'll close together. I'll close this.